I want to welcome you into the Sunday preaching podcast of the Point Church located in beautiful Perdido Key, Florida. I'm Tim Coleman, the senior pastor, and we believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. I'm glad you're either downloading the sermon or listening live to our service, and I pray that this message is a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. I just want to tell you um, how much I enjoy uh, getting to preach to you every week and uh, how much I, I delight in the fact that some of you listen. I'm only kidding. I just feel, you know, I, I feel that you come on Sunday and, man, you're ready for the Word. You're hungry for the Word. And, you know, that's really the way it's supposed to be. And uh, I just want to tell you how thankful I am for the way that you uh, get in the Word and listen to the Word. And I really enjoyed preaching through the book of Hebrews. The Lord did a really work in my heart uh, that I can't even describe. And I'm really, really, really excited about the new series that we're starting today uh, in the book of First Timothy. So would you grab your Bible? Uh, Joe read the first 11 verses just a few minutes ago uh, from First Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 1. I'm not going to read that again, but I'm going to teach through it uh, as I'm preaching to you today. Now, we have entitled this series, and when I say we, I'm not talking about the little mouse in my pocket. I'm talking about Pastor Josh and I, who preaches over in Alberta. Uh, we've entitled this series, Building a Healthy Church. Building a Healthy Church. Now, in Psalm 103 and verse 19, it says, the Lord has established his throne in the heaven, heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. There's that word kingdom. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Luke 4.43, Jesus said, I must, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Luke chapter 8 and verse number 1. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the 12, the disciples, were with him. Luke chapter 17, verse number 21. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, before we talk about a healthy church, I want to remind you that there is more said in the Gospels about the kingdom than about the church. As a matter of fact, kingdom is used 126 times in the Gospels, another 34 times in other places in the New Testament. I share with you because the movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is about the kingdom of God. A part of the kingdom of God is the establishment of the local church. The kingdom of God in the book of Acts is on the move. The Bible says that these early Christians were literally turning the world upside down by declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. And as the world is getting turned upside down. There are local New Testament churches established along the way. How many of you have flown into the Atlanta airport? Wave at me. You've flown into the Atlanta airport? How many of you believe the rapture is going through Concourse C, all right? Everything from Pensacola goes to Atlanta, right? The Atlanta airport is not the destination. It's just the connecting point. You fly into Atlanta to get where you need to go. You stop there for a little bit, and then you move out and leave and go uh, uh, to your further destination. I give you that little illustration in your mind to say that the church is the terminal, okay? This is not the end-all, do-all place, the kingdom of God. We come together in the local church in order to go out and to do the kingdom work that God has called us to do. And so I, wanna, I wanted to establish that with you to remind you that we come here to get fed for fellowship and for encouragement to go out and to do the work in the kingdom. But yet in the work of the kingdom, over and over in the New Testament, 
you see that local churches are established. Now, there's a man by the name of Saul in Acts chapter 9 who is on the road to Damascus because he wants to kill or imprison every Christian he can find. And on that road, he has a a head-on collision with God. God strikes him down in the road and changes his life. And instead of him being a Christian hater, he turns into a Christian missionary. One of the greatest church planners and missionaries the church has ever known is a man we know as the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 19, he goes into the city of Ephesus and he begins to preach that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the hall of uh, tyranny and in the town where Artemis was the number one uh, Greek god and in the synagogues, Paul declared Jesus Christ is Lord and many people were converted to Christianity. What the text tells us is that part of this gospel declaration and this kingdom movement, as people were saved, it actually damaged the economy in the city of Ephesus. Here's the reason why. The main industry were people who were making idols to the God of Artemis. And so as people got saved and turned away from their gods, there was less of a a need for the carving and the making of graven images. So all of these business owners naturally lost their mind. They're saying, hey, we need, to, we need to kick this guy out of town. We need to throw him in jail. He's, he's destroying our business. Acts chapter 19 says there is a riot in town, and Paul is driven out of the city of Ephesus. Now, in your Bible, there is a book called Ephesians. How many of you read Ephesians before? Okay, there's six chapters there. Paul wrote Ephesians between the years 60 and 62, as a doctrinal letter and a practical letter to this church. The book that we're going to be studying for the next few weeks is written to the pastor of that church who has a really cool, hip first name. His name is Timothy. Timothy is the pastor of the church at Ephesus. So we call these books the pastoral epistles. Now, this is very important. You know, you and I send each other uh, maybe a handwritten note, probably less of that these days. Maybe I should say we send each other a text or, or an email, right? We communicate. And this is certainly a handwritten letter to Timothy. It is personal in nature. But you and I believe that as Paul wrote this, he was writing in the pneuma. He was writing in the Holy Spirit. That this passage is inspired It's infallible. It's included in the Bible, so it's relevant for us today. Now, one little snippet here I want to throw to you. I was reading someone this week, and they were making the point that in the evangelical world today, in a lot of churches, pastors avoid preaching through the pastoral epistles because there are too many difficult sermons. There are too many issues that it'll be better if you just avoid this, all right? We, we don't want to talk about church discipline. Hey, let's not talk about the role of women in the church. Let's not talk about sexuality, sexual orientation, and hot-button issues. If we'll just avoid certain books in the Bible, we won't even have to talk about that stuff. I've got good news for you. You don't go to one of those churches. In this book, we're going to get to a lot of important things. Some people try to discredit this book and say, no, you can't take 1 Timothy, you can't take the blueprint of 1 Timothy and force it on a local New Testament church in 2021, and I want you to know that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to force it on the local church in 2021 because we believe the Bible is authoritative, we believe the Bible's sufficient, and we believe it speaks to all matters that pertain to life. So how's that for an introduction? Can we jump into the book? Here we go. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 1, the first verse, Paul identifies himself as the writer of the book. Now, notice, he identifies himself with authority. He says, I am an apostle. 
I am a spokesperson of Jesus Christ, and I am writing this by the command of the Lord. Look at me, look at me. There are a lot of people who try to say, well, you know, you can't take something Paul wrote. He's just a man. No, Paul says here, I'm not writing in my own opinion. I'm not writing about how I feel. I'm writing this by a direct command from God. I am a spokesman of God who is our Savior and of Jesus Christ, our hope. Now, how many of you, at least you know a little bit about Greek mythology, you've heard of that or so forth. And so in this Hellenistic culture, a lot of the people look to the Greek gods as their Savior, you know? We're gonna look at the sun god or the moon god, and they're gonna help me or deliver me in some type of way. And so all of the gods that they came up with, they were viewed as the Savior's. On top of that, in the Roman Empire, the emperor was referred to as our savior. Nero, of course, was called the savior of the people. How many of you know today we only have one savior, one true savior? He is God, our savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So it's, it's not casual that he threw that word savior in there. I want you to notice at the end of verse number one, that the culture in Ephesus is just like the culture today. Many of us need a word of hope. We need a word of hope. There's a lot of stuff going on around us. And there are people that today, there's some of you in this room, I know because I've spoken with you about your situation and, and things that you've got going on in your life. In this world, this broken, sin-cursed world, it's really easy to fall into the trap of hopelessness. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to survive. And Paul just reminds Timothy right off the bat, I know there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in Ephesus, but we're going to make it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse number two, he's writing to Timothy. Timothy, who is my true child in the faith. Now let's rewind. In Acts chapter 16, Paul on his missionary journey, he goes into the city of Lystra. This is your homework assignment to read uh, Acts 16 this afternoon. In Lystra there, among the Christians, he meets this sharp, engaged young man named Timothy. And he observes that Timothy loves the Lord, uh, that, he's, that he's got it together. And Paul says, you know what? Uh, the Lord wants me to take you with me on my missionary journey. There's an important detail in Acts 16, ladies. It is that Timothy was discipled by his mother and his grandmother. He had a Gentile father and a Jewish mother uh, who had converted to Christianity, but his mom and his grandmom invested in him, and now he's the pastor at the church at Ephesus. Ladies, don't ever underestimate the value you have in discipling your children and your grandchildren. You have no idea. We have no idea how God is using you right now in this moment. I think about my grandmother and how she invested in me when I was a little knucklehead, right? Who, who loved me, prayed for me, invested in me. My parents invested in me. And, and, and God has called me now to proclaim the word of God. You never know how God's gonna use somebody. And so his mother and grandmother invested in him. Paul takes him on the journey. And now as he leaves Ephesus, he puts Timothy in charge as the pastor of the church. Paul brings this salutation of grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Look on the screen. I love this. I was reading the other day in the Pillar Commentary, and, and, and he was writing about why, why does Paul say these words? You know, uh, how many of you are reading your Bible sometimes, and you've heard grace, peace, and mercy before, and so you just read it and keep right on moving? and maybe you don't slow down and meditate on what it really means. So Pillar says, slow down for a minute and think about why he said that, because grace expresses God's ongoing forgiveness and enabling. How many of you have needed grace this week? How many of you needed forgiveness this week? Some of you need to put both hands up, right? How many of you grace sustained you this week? It just kept you going. It enabled you. How about mercy? Mercy reminds us of his sympathy and his concern. 
Oh, I need to remind you today that God loves us and he cares about us. Thank God for his mercy in our life. He's sympathetic toward us. And then that word peace, in a world of upheaval and confusion and chaos and anger, isn't it great to know that we have tranquility and we have peace through Jesus Christ our Lord? Paul is saying that's what the church at Ephesus has and that's exactly what it needs in this tumultuous day. I want to focus on that last word of verse number two for just a minute, and that is that he calls Jesus Christ our Lord. You know what I believe today we have in a lot of homes, in a lot of churches, in a lot of our lives? I really believe that we have a lordship problem, a lordship. There's some marriages that are on the rocks today. Not all marriages, but there are some marriages that are on the rocks today. And and the real problem with that is lordship. Lordship. Is Jesus the authority? That word Lord means authority. Again, remember, we're talking about the church as a part of the kingdom movement of God. It was Jesus that said just before his ascension that all authority has been given to me both in heaven and on earth. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, let me have your attention. I'm in charge around here. I'm Lord. Either Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Lordship. Why are there some churches today, maybe they're having some upheavals and some problems? It's, it's, it's a lordship issue. It's a lordship issue in our life. I love what John Piper, I was reading him this week, and he said, the lordship of the crucified and risen Christ should receive emphasis today. We need to emphasize the lordship of Christ. Because if we don't, we get away from who Jesus is. We get away from what Jesus has said. And we get away from the demands and the commands that he places upon our lives. Lordship. Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's get into verse number three. That's just the introduction, verses one and two. In verse number three, I want to point out three quick things. The first thing that Paul says to Timothy, his young protege, the one that he has mentored and invested in, he says to Timothy, Timothy, you need to stay in your place. Stay in your place. Look at verse number three. I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, say those next three words with me, remain. Say that again. Now, we're talking today about building a healthy church. And the first thing I see in that verse is that if we're gonna have a healthy church and build a healthy church, There needs to be stability in leadership. There needs to be stability. You know, years ago, they would would say to us that the average pastor would stay at a place uh, 18 18 months to three years, something like that, and uh, and not as much stability. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I'm not going to waste your time talking about it. The good thing is over the last few years, uh, the the newer studies are saying uh, that there is uh, more stability in pastoral leadership. Uh, 15 years ago today, I became the pastor of this church, 15 years ago. And I thank God for his faithfulness. I thank God, I thank God for his faithfulness. I thank God for, uh, for all that he's done and all that he is doing and all that he's going to do. I think sometimes when you're in ministry, you're looking over the fence, you're looking over the fence, and, and, and you think maybe the grass is greener over there. And and you don't realize that it's just growing over a septic tank, you know? And, and so you're, you're, I'm going to move on. I'm going to move on. It's, not, it's humanity, right? Some of you are that way with your job. Let's be honest, okay? You're thinking, man, I think I want to do something else. Or, or, or you get restless or so forth. Or, or maybe sometimes in ministry you feel like, man, I'm not making, any, I'm not making a difference here. Sometimes when you're a leader, you think, is anybody listening to me? Uh, is anybody getting it? Or, or maybe you're thinking, I'm not doing a good job here. Maybe I could do a better job somewhere else. And, and there's no doubt Paul said this for a reason. Here's young Timothy, pastoring at Ephesus, and he's restless. Why is he restless? Well, sometimes you sit down and you think about all the reasons you ought to leave. Here's Timothy. Scholars say that he's probably in his 30s. He's a young man. So he's probably dealing with some older people in the church who've been around longer 
who are probably more entrenched in Judaism and other things, and as a young man, maybe he's intimidated. Others say maybe it was because of his sickness. We know Paul said to Timothy, hey, you need to take a little wine for your belly. We know that Timothy was dealing with some physical issues, and when when you're sick, sometimes that weighs down on you and you get discouraged. How about just the normal routine of life? How many of you would just be honest and say, man, I know what it's like to be discouraged. Maybe you've been discouraged this week or, or you're concerned about things going on in your life. You get discouraged. Hey, people in leadership get discouraged. You get weighted down. Uh, sometimes in, uh, in pastoral leadership, it's lonely. It's just lonely. I'm just telling you, it's lonely. Uh, sometimes you feel like you're in isolation. Think about Timothy who got to be right beside Paul. Paul comes into Ephesus after he gets out of his first imprisonment and he, and he checks on things and then he leaves again and he's at Macedonia and he writes back to Timothy and it's possible that Timothy's going, man, I want to go work with Paul. I, he's bold. He's strong. He's a leader. And on top of that, your Bible gives you some, some kind of snapshots of Timothy in that he was probably more laid back in his personality. Uh, he wasn't a bull in a china shop. He wasn't an apostle Paul. They were not wired the same way. And so maybe maybe Timothy's just feeling it. He's going, man, I'm getting run over here. I want to move on. What many pastors don't understand is when we get run over in one place, you get run over in the next place sometimes, right? The grass is greener on the other side. How about this? Here's what we know, because we're going to jump into it in verse number three. Uh, the last part of the verse. Do you remember back in Acts chapter 20 when Paul was leaving Ephesus? He gave a very clear warning to the elders and the leaders there, and Timothy would have been one of them. What did Paul say? Acts chapter 20, verse 25. Look up on the screen. Paul said, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. There's that word kingdom again proclaiming the kingdom of God, salvation, gospel, grace, the spread. Some of you are not going to see my face again. Verse 26, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. Here's what Paul said. I gave it to you with both barrels. I told you exactly what you needed to hear. I didn't hold back. I gave you all of the doctrine and the framework of what you need to be a Christian and to have a local church. Verse 27, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, here's the warning. Here's the warning. Pay careful attention. Pay attention. What are we paying attention to? Well, you pay attention, first of all, to yourself because it's easy to drift away. It's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to be deceived. You pay attention to all the flock Again, this is writing to pastoral leadership in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. You care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Be alert. And remember that for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. Paul said, hey, after I'm gone, I want you to know it's going to get stirred up around here. There's going to be wolves coming from the outside. There's going to be people on the inside who are going out and listening to rhetoric and other things. And they're going to come back in the church, and they're going to try to teach their own doctrine and their own ways. And what I want to focus in for just a minute on this is that when you're a pastor and you've got to be battling with that, sometimes it makes you weary. Sometimes just physically, mentally, emotionally, you get tired in that battle. And so you begin to think, of the, look, if I'll go somewhere else, I won't have to battle this. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, Timothy, I know you've got all this stuff going on. I know you're discouraged, but I'm telling you, you need to stay right where you're at. What are the reasons to stay? 
I'll tell you, Timothy had a role to fulfill. He had a call upon his life. God had him in that place for a moment. If he goes away and just lets the church go and turns it over to these false teachers, it's going to fall apart, which ultimately that's what did happen to the church at Ephesus. And Paul is saying, Timothy, you got to stay where you're at because there are people that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what? God really spoke to me about that in this verse, and I hope he's speaking to you right now. Stability, stability, stability. Why does the point church need to be here and to be doing what we're doing? Because there are lost people out here that need to hear Jesus. And there needs to be doctrinal integrity. We need to stay faithful to the word of God. So the first thing is, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, stay in your place. The second thing he says about doctrinal integrity is Timothy, in your place, in your role, give solid biblical instruction. Solid biblical instruction. Look at the last half of verse three. So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, notice in verse three, he says certain persons. In verse six, he says certain persons again. Paul is saying, hey, there's some people there By the time we get to the end of chapter one, it's going to be like Paul is just going to say, you know what, I'm done with that certain person's thing. I'm fixing to call names. He calls names at the end of chapter one. And he says, these two, these two are hurting the church. But here he says there are certain people that are deviating. They are drifting away from the pure doctrine of the church. They're teaching a different doctrine. And Timothy, I'm telling you, I know you're laid back. I know your personality. I know how you operate. But I'm telling you, God has placed you where you're at to command them and to charge them that they're not going to do that in the local fellowship. How many of you believe a pastor should be a doctrinal watchdog for the church? A doctrinal watchdog for the church. Timothy, don't let it happen. Don't allow people to devote themselves, verse 4, to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, I love this. Look at that word myths there. They certainly understood Greek mythology in this culture. A myth, of course, is a story or something that is given as the truth when we know that it's not the truth. Paul uses the word myth five times in his writings. As I drilled down on that word, here's what I discovered, that in the church, now think about this, in the fellowship of the church, there are myths being taught. What is he talking about? There are primarily two factions that were coming against the church at this time, and I'm going to call one of those factions liberalism, and I'm going to call the other faction legalism. You see, Ephesus was a very sexually perverted uh, society. Ephesus was a place where everybody there lived by the philosophy of do whatever makes you happy. We call that a hedonistic culture. Live the way you want to live. Do whatever you want to do. Whatever makes you happy, you just do it. That attitude had come into the church. So I'm going to call that liberalism, right? And so when you think about theological liberalism, this is what I see in 2021. In theological liberalism, it is like there is an attempt to figure out something new this month that God is against that we're for, okay? God has spoken about this, but we found something else here. No, 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 that's, that doesn't fit here. Uh, imagine a church where people in the church are saying, hey, it's okay to live with somebody. It's okay to, to have a couple of wives. It's okay to, uh, to live in homosexuality. It's okay. And on and on and on. There's, there's no boundaries and there, there's no guardrails. Does that sound like the culture we live in today? No, 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 liberal, theological liberalism. Over here, another thing that was pressing on the church was what was known as asceticism. Asceticism, A-S-C-E-T-I, whatever. You can figure it out later. Asceticism. Asceticism was legalism. There were people in the church that had the attitude that they were the Holy Spirit in everybody's lives. Oh, no, you can't eat that. 
Oh, no, you can't do that. On top of the fact of mixing some of that Judaism back into Christianity. When you try to mix anything with Christianity, you don't have Christianity. When you try to mix anything, when you try to mix any kind of law in with grace, you no longer have grace. So between, between liberalism and legalism is grace, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me make one more point. I believe legalism, liberalism and legalism are bed buddies because enough is never enough. There's no ending point. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is when you come to the ending point of yourself and you realize how broken and sinful you are and how much you need Jesus. And Paul is saying, stick with that. Stick with that. Don't get into endless genealogies. Don't let people get up and teach about Judaism and and this rabbi and my family member and, and this is what he said and this is what she said. No, when you allow that atmosphere to go on in the church, what you do is you fuel speculation. I want you to hear me. I somewhat grew up in an environment. Mama, plug your ears up for just a minute. She would amen me. We spent a period of our life in some churches to where there was not a good, healthy atmosphere to ask questions, okay? This is the way it is. Don't ask me why. It's just the way it is. And if you ask questions, it was as if you were, if you just ask questions, it was as if you're rebellious, you know, like, don't you question anything here, you know, like rules and regulations and other things. And so I get that. I get being in an environment where you don't feel like you can get some good answers to just questions you have, you know? And may this always be a place where people can ask questions. With our students, I know John's heart, may this always be a a place where students can ask questions about life. There's some hard issues of life that that come up. There are things you hear and, and you're like, man, I want to get some answers to that. And may those answers always come from the Scriptures as much as we can, a place to get good answers. But let me go over here for just a minute and say, and I think this is the part of the warning here in this text. It's one thing to ask a lot of questions. It's a whole other thing to question everything. Everything. You know, I see it in this church. I see it in this church. There's some people who question everything. And I'm not just talking about decision of the church. I'm talking about doctrine. I'm talking about the Bible. Question, you're, if you spend your whole life questioning everything, Paul is saying at the end of this verse that you will never reach a point where you are able to adequately steward and administer the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus in your life. That you have been given a faith, the faith, I believe faith is a gift, the gift of faith, the faith that you believe in Jesus. And hear me now, there's got to be a point in your life as a believer where some things get settled in your heart, where you're settled. And then once they're settled in your heart, you have stewardship of that because God has a mission and a ministry of discipleship for you. The reason we go out and evangelize is because we tell people of what Christ has done in us. The reason we disciple or how we disciple is we share what Christ has taught us, and then we live that out by example. Where does that all start? It starts by staying true to solid biblical instruction. Now, verse 5, real quick. Verse 5 to me is kind of the Mount Everest of these 11 verses, where Paul says, that the goal, the aim of our charge, now again, that word charge there is command. What is the goal of my preaching? What is the goal of your uh, evangelism? What is your goal of discipleship? What is your goal in your small group? As you give the word of God, the goal, the charge is love. Love. I really believe this. It's biblical. It's biblical. I believe that God's people are called to be a loving people, filled with love. 
even sometimes when you disagree, even when you have strong disagreements with others who totally do not see the world the way you see it, you ought to approach that conversation with love. The word love there is, is agape. Agape was used 63 times by our Lord and Savior in his earthly ministry in the Gospels, and he always used it as an action, an action. Love is an action. Paul used agape 71 times. I, I believe we can conclude from those two numbers that Jesus poured his love out on us. God so loved me that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And then what God wants us to do is not go around and be cranky and angry and mean all the time. But God wants us to pour his love out on others. And I think too many times Christians think that compromise and love go hand in hand. No, sometimes love gets tough. But he's got to speak the truth in love. You can be bold and take a stand and speak the truth and not be a jerk about it. You, you can declare to someone that, no, you're, you're living in violation of the Word of God, but you can do it in a loving, Christ-like way. To say God loves you and God will forgive you and God will change you if you will allow him. Love, 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 love. Even in dealing with people that don't believe like you believe. How could we ever win somebody over to a correct biblical position if we have the wrong disposition? So we do it with love. Now notice three marks of love in that verse. He says, number one, you, if you love the right way, if your love is correct, if it is in Christ, you will have a pure heart, you will have a good conscience, and you will have a sincere faith, a pure heart. Jesus said, I have purified you. I've set you apart uh, to be peculiar, to be zealous of my good works. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that we are to purify ourselves, that we are to keep a clean heart. We're to have a good conscience. I love what Martin Luther said about having a good conscience. He said, this is a beautiful text. The aim is not to increase questions and to leave consciences unsure after all their difficulties, but to bring consciences to the point that they know this for sure. That's what love does to you. Love settles in your heart that the gospel is true and that Jesus is true. And then he says that love produces in you a sincere faith. Could I say something? And I don't mean to be harsh or ugly. I promise I don't. I, I prayed over this, and, and I want to say this in a, in, in a spirit of grace and kindness, but I believe one thing that has damaged the church through the years is that there are a lot of fake, phony people that attend them. I know that wasn't an amen. That was an oh me. The word sincere there means fake. <laughs> it means the opposite. Sincere is the opposite is fake, phony that you have a real faith. I just want to ask you today, I want to ask you, do you talk about faith or do you have a real faith? A real faith that is rooted in love. If it's rooted in love, he says you're going to have a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. And then he says in verse 6, there are certain people that have swerved away from these three things. Now, when we think about swerving, what do you think of automatically? You think of your car, right? So we know that driving down the road, there's a line over here and a line over here, and that we need to stay adequately balanced between those two lines, right? And anytime you're riding down the road, someone uh, was telling me the uh, day before yesterday about how they were coming down Highway 98 over here, and this truck was swerving all over the place. When you, when you see someone swerving, the goal is to get them stopped as soon as you can because a swerving vehicle, whether uh, they're intoxicated, inebriated, or they're texting or checking Facebook or whatever's going on, you know, if they keep swerving, then, then there's going to be casualties and there's going to be bad things happening. And Paul is saying here that when you have people in the church that are swerving and you allow that swerving to go on, there's going to be casualties from that. That there needs to be leadership that speaks into that and gives solid 
biblical direction. He says, some have wandered away into vain discussions. They desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or things about which they make confident assertions. Have you grown enough in your Christian life where you've heard maybe someone make a statement, a definitive statement about something related to Christianity, and in your heart and your mind going, that ain't true, or that's not biblical. That's what discipleship's all about, right? Y'all, y'all with me? Y'all tracking with me? What he's saying here is that people, have, there are people standing up saying, well, you know, I want to talk about this thing, and here's what Paul is saying, vain discussions, he was saying they're full of hot air. They're, they're wasting time. They're not speaking truth. They're speaking their opinion. What we need today is not opinions. What we need is the word of God. So Paul says to Timothy, stay in your place. Give solid biblical instructions. And let me finish. In verses 8 through 11, he reminds Timothy and the church that we must live what we say we believe. We must live out what you say you believe. Church, hear me. Your belief, what you say you believe, it has to match your behavior. Now, if you're a Christian, you know that God gave us the law. We looked at it in the book of Hebrews. He makes mention there in verse number eight, we know, we know that the law is good if someone uses it correctly, if someone uses it lawfully. Now, what you see in this section is a reference to the Decalogue, to the Ten Commandments, okay? Exodus chapter 20. He's saying that the, the law is not bad. It's not, it's not that the law is bad. It only becomes bad when the law is used incorrectly. And so, if you're a Christian, you understand that the law of God It brings us to a point where we look at it and we say, wow, God is holy and I'm not. We look at the law and we say, I'm sinful. He's holy, but I'm sinful. You remember back when I was preaching a few weeks ago and I was talking about Moses on Mount Sinai and I said that God placed a sign down at the bottom of the mountain that said, do not enter. He told the people, don't you come up here. I'm holy. Don't you even let an animal touch this mountain or they're going to be killed. And in that picture, we see the holiness and the righteousness of God. What we see in the law is that we don't measure up, that you don't go to heaven because you keep a list of rules. You don't go to heaven because you keep the Ten Commandments. You're totally incapable of keeping all the Ten Commandments. As a matter of fact, some scholars say that you can piece by piece, verse by verse, in verses 8 through 11, make a case that Paul indirectly mentions all 10 of the commandments. Most scholars say he at least mentions uh, commandments 5 through 9 because he talks about how that the law is not laid down for the just. It doesn't, the law does not make you righteous. The law is for the lawless and the disobedient. Again, you look at it and you see that there there is ungodliness for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane. Those seem to be pointing uh, back to a man's relationship with God. And then uh, probably uh, commandment number five, uh, honor your father and mother. He said there are those who strike. That word is kill. They kill their fathers, and their mothers. For murderers, that's the commandment, uh, you uh, shall not commit uh, murder. And then he gets into uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, sexual sins. He mentions in verse number 10, sexual immorality. Now again, you've got you've to think about Ephesus and you've got to think about us. In Ephesus at this time, there was rampant promiscuity. There was fornication. There was adultery. There was pedophilia. He even mentions in the next phrase, men who were committing homosexuality. All of these are sin against a holy and a righteous God. Now, let me pause there for just a minute and say, one of the reasons why some evangelical pastors don't want to preach through a book like this is because 
They don't want to have to get up and speak to people in their church that are living together and committing fornication. They don't want to have to speak to issues as it relates to sexuality or uh, transgenderism or sexual orientation or homosexuality because we live in a world today. Remember when I said liberalism just a minute ago? Let's go just a little bit further and we're in, this, we're in this theological culture today where we're figuring out all the things that we've discovered that God's really not against. And Paul is saying here, when you look into the law of God, it is clear as a bell that God does not smile on sexual immorality of all kinds. He doesn't. It's not okay. He goes on to say, not only that, but enslavers, that word there is literally kidnappers. Ephesus had a problem with kidnapping of children and of women. There are liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. I'm about to land the plane. I want you to see that word sound there in the, in the, in the word. That word sound there is the same word that we get for hygiene hygiene. He's saying that what the law does is the law leads us to where we have a healthy hygienic doctrine. And that doctrine is this. I belong to Christ. Christ lives in me and through me. I belong to him. I do not belong to this world. So it's not okay for me to live any way I want to live because I belong to him. Verse number 11, and I'm done. He says, this is in accordance with the gospel. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. Now, I want you to see the last word in verse 11. You know what that word is, entrusted? You know what the word there is? It's interesting. It's the same word for which we get faith, pistis, to which I have, here's what Paul is saying, in accordance to the good news of the grace of Jesus Christ and the glory of God into which I have been faithed. I've been faithed. So I'm closing my message today by asking you, have you been faithed? <laughs> have you been faithed? In other words, have you been born again? If you have, and if this church is going to be a healthy church, a healthy church, not a perfect church, but a healthy church, then this church must have the right doctrine, and then we must have the right integrity that goes with it. It must be healthy. What we say we believe, what we say we believe must match our behavior. What is our behavior? Our behavior is, God, I belong to you, and everything I do is for the glory and the honor of your great name. Everything I do is to lift up the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel today is that we know we're sinners, but that God sent us a great Savior. And the church goes out now into the kingdom to declare Jesus Christ is Lord, and he will save all who will come and repent of their sins, look into the law of God, and realize they're a sinner, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, confess their sin, and confess him as Lord, and they too can come into the church, and then the kingdom of God is advanced, all for the glory of God. Does that make sense to you? Does that sure seem like what Paul is saying to Timothy here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 11, that we've put our finger on it. This is, this is what we're called to do, and this is what, how we're called to live. There was an old mechanical engineer that had worked in a plant for about 45 years, and he just did his job every day. He rarely ever missed work. He just routine kind of guy, very respected in the plant, not a lot of hoopla, didn't get a lot of rewards. He finished up his 45 years. He retired, and they gave him a little measly watch, you know, and sent him out the door home. And 
he went on home and his career was over with. And about three, about three months later, they had a problem with one of the machines in the plant and they couldn't figure out how to fix it. They just absolutely could not figure out what to do. And they knew that this guy was really good with this particular machine. And so they kind of swallowed their pride and they called him and they said, look, we're, we're in a pickle here. We're not producing like we need to. Would you come and help us figure out this problem? He said, no, you know, I, I've retired now. I'm, I'm done with that. I, I, really, I really don't want to fool with that anymore. And, and they just begged and begged him. They said, look, we'll bring you in. We'll bring you in as a consultant. And we'll pay you whatever. We've got to get this machine running. We're missing out on our production. He said, okay, I'll come. He comes down there. He spends about an hour and a half or so looking around and uh, trying to figure out some things. He walks into this control room where the, the plans, the schematics of this machine is laid out on a big table. And he walks over and he takes a red pen and he walks over to that machine and he places a red X on one particular spot. He said, there's your problem right there. And so they go over and look, and they go to the machine, figure it out. They fix it. Within an hour, they're up and running. About three or four weeks later, the main guy at the plant received a bill in the mail. It was an invoice from this guy for his work, and the bill was for $50,000. That was his consulting fees. So he was just all in a huff. He called him on the phone. He said, look, man, I got your bill. He said, I need, I need you to send me an invoice itemized for, for these charges. He said, okay, I'll, I'll be glad to do that. So he sent him another invoice. When the owner of the plant got it, he opened it up, and he looked down, and there was two lines. On the first line, it said $5 for the work that I did, $49,995 for knowing where to put the red X. I heard that story the other day, and I, I thought about all the problems we're having in the world and all the upheaval and all the confusion and all the questions. And the gospel of Jesus Christ helps us today know where to put the red X. And sometimes part of putting that red X, it's not saying they're the problem. Sometimes it's saying I'm the problem. And that's what the beauty of the gospel is all about, that Christ died for us. Isn't that beautiful? Let's pray together.